Welcome to Making a Scene, an Esplanade podcast about how art gets made. I'm Muna Bagarab, your host for this episode, which is all about the magic of cinema. Today, I'll be talking to artist Brian Gothong Tan and Asian Film Archive programmer Thong Kei Wee. Brian is the creator and director of Lost Cinema 2020, a multidisciplinary performance that is part of Esplanade's The Studio Season this year. I'm also a member of the cast of Lost Cinema and one of the characters I play is the star of the 1957 Singaporean horror movie Pontiana. Pontiana was one of the most popular movies produced during the golden age of Singaporean cinema in the 1950s and 60s. Today, Kewi will be telling us more about this fascinating period and how the Asian Film Archive or AFA helps to save, share and explore the art of Asian cinema. Now, before we get into that, let's first get to Brian. Brian, you created the first edition of Lost Cinema in 2018 by deconstructing tropes found in Asian filmography. What were some of these tropes that interested you? I grew up on Disney films and basically (laughs) Western films, right? I only got my taste of Asian films when I was like maybe 10 onwards. You know, when when you start catching some art films late at night by accident. (laughs) And I was always fascinated by how Asian film directors use time. They were very different from the Hollywood filmmakers, of course. For example, like Wong Kar Wai, you don't know whether it's 10 years or 20 years or, you know, Mm. even longer. And also the way their stories were always kind of non-linear, there's not always like a central character or hero that you follow. There's no like a logical journey that mm. they go through. So I was always kind of interested in that a form of storytelling. And so I decided to take that and deconstruct it and explore it in this piece. Okay. The 2018 edition looked at three iconic films, as you mentioned, Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, Eric Ku's 12 Stories, and Apichatpong Wirase Takul's Tropical Melody. Why these three films? Well, I mean, I've always been big fans of these three filmmakers. The first one was, of course, Wong Kar Wai. I think Mm. all Singaporean filmmakers have kind of copied him in one way or another in our student films. And there's Eric Ku, who I saw 12 stories when I was like, I think in secondary school in the cinema. And I was quite blown away about how you could make a film in Singapore, you know? Yeah. And then, of course, Apichat Wong was much later when I was in the army. I encountered his tropical melody. I was just blown away at how he use the form of cinema. It was totally like mind-blowing and I didn't think of cinema in that way. So uh, Mm. I've decided to, you know, it was really my love letter to these three directors that kind of shaped my artistic aesthetics. And I wanted to explore how they made use of uh, time, image and storytelling. And then two years down, Mm -hmm. uh, what made you want to revisit Lost Cinema again? The first Lost Cinema was actually just a video installation at LaSalle. Mm. Uh, LaSalle, the ICA... uh, basically asked us to incorporate live performance in it. So I asked Yen Ling and San, who's a a dancer from Thailand, uh, to kind of react to this video installation. And from that, me and James, James is the producer, Mm -hmm. uh, were like, oh, maybe we could make this into a performance. So we approached Esplanade to see whether they were interested. And of course they were interested. Because the the way I explored it was very formal and I wanted to make it a bit more theatrical. And so I decided to see how lost cinema was relevant for theatre audiences. So mm-hmm. I, I happened to chance by the museum at Cafe Cinema and it was really like how 
uh, Lok Wanto's life in this small little museum that was on the second floor. And I was so intrigued. I mean, I've heard of the golden age of Singapore cinema, but just seeing photos of like Lok Wanto and Audrey Hepburn and all these big Hollywood stars. And I realized like, oh my goodness, there was this huge... A golden age of cinema of Singapore that we totally thrown away into the rubbish heap. So I decided to uh, explore that uh, with Kayleen, who's the writer. So that was the new version for Esplanade. Yeah, and it's coming back again. I have a yeah. very important question to ask you. Yeah. Who's your favorite cast member? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's very hard. I think I, I love all of you. Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> okay, so you were also the cinematographer for Eric Koo's 2015 short film Cinema, yeah. which was part of the Seven Letters Anthology. Mm. Now, this short actually paid homage to the golden age of Singapore cinema during the 1950s, especially the Pontianak movies. So, what did you find interesting about this era of cinema? It was yeah. really like all these films that I've never really heard about. So I went to do a lot of research. And of course, this was around 2015, 2016. And, you know, it was the bicentennial. It was also our 50th anniversary. So there was a lot of things that was coming up, like the Singapore Memory Project. I happened to chance by uh, To Hun Ping's uh, web website about all these SG film locations. And I was just so intrigued that there were a few movie-making studios in Singapore yeah. that were quite big time, like Cafe Chris and, of mm-hmm. course, the Malay film productions. And, uh, yeah, just digging up all this was like, wow. Like, we really need to cherish our history and not just throw it away into the history bin like that. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And it does feel like kind of like a lost cinema. Like, when yeah. you discover it, you're just like, oh, where is all this now? Yeah. Right? Um, so, Kiwi, can you actually tell us more about the significance of this period of Singapore's cinematic history, especially the Pontianak movies that were very popular during the 1950s and 1960s? Yeah, where do we begin? Because <laughs> there's so much history to, to the 50s and 60s golden era cinema, right? So, I think just specifically on the Pontianak series, mm-hmm. um, we have to go back to 1957, right? When the first Pontianak film, which is directed by B.N. Rao, made such a great success and great reception across like cultural lines as well, across like the different communities, not just the Malay community. This has a benchmark for the horror genre in the local film industry. So we, we, we kind of need to understand that. Then on it spawned um, two more sequels. Then the mm. Pontianak, which is Revenge of the Pontianak, also released in 1957, and Sumpa Pontianak, The Curse of the Pontianak, 1958. And this also spawned a competitor, right, Shaw Brothers, to also create its own versions of the Pontianak yeah. film. So this is really the context of how the Malay horror genre back in the local film industry began. For people who have never really seen movies from the 1950s, 60s, can you maybe give a sense of what they were like and what's so special about them? The most basic appeal is looking at the films and recognizing some of the locations. You know, like there was many times I say, oh my goodness, that's Tanjong Katong. I know that place, <laughs> you know. Or I know that corner and it's still there, you know. So that, that's the immediate reaction. Or the, the actors themselves is very stylized compared to today's acting standards. Uh, Siput Sarawak, you know, I really love her acting. It's really over the top and it's inventive, it's original. I enjoy uh, watching her performances as well. Mm, I definitely echo that because, well, as for an archive, like when we archive these films, then a lot of times, you know, historians or like uh, people who are researching actually use these films to like like locate past locations in Singapore, especially like, you know, in Singapore when the landscape keeps changing, right? 
then this becomes like a very important document actually. Beyond that, like in terms of the entertainment value, I was actually quite surprised that um, I think for instance, like some of the comic stuff, the humor still works for me because I think like they were also quite inspired by like physical humor, for instance. People like Wahid Sate, who was also in the Pontianak films or like other other comic characters. I think they were all inspired by maybe the Buster Keaton era stuff. So a lot of physical humor and and then a lot of local colloquial humor. I feel like it still stands. And not just for the Malay community. I think when we have language subtitles, I can also like get the humor as well. Then of course, like sometimes inevitably, like some of the horror stuff can get quite humorous once we watch in hindsight now in this era. <laughs> I just appreciate that. Yeah, I see like these pioneers like really like creating work before filmmakers like Brian yourself like started. Like these other people and they were like, you know, hundreds plus of like films that were made during the era. I think that itself is quite touching. There's just so much history to that that we could still learn from. That's the real value for that. And what do you think were some of the factors that I guess, allowed cinema to thrive in Singapore during that time? And what kind of impact do you think it had on the region? Firstly, we have to think about cinema as an entertainment medium at the time. And of course, we didn't have TVs. The generation didn't have... Um, well, we had, of course, like Bangsawan troops. We had like, you know, like theatre as well. But then cinema was, of course, Malay cinema especially was inspired by Bangsawan. From there, we had this medium that really fascinated people. And I think at that time when people needed to go somewhere to escape from like rural lives, for instance, I think cinema became a great form of entertainment and escapism. So I think that's why really cinema took off. But then, of course, we really have to look at how it began in Singapore, right? Producers from Shanghai, from, from Hong Kong, they all came in with these Chinese producers, brought in Bollywood Indian directors with their own expertise and then had Malay actors and Malay crew and writers. So all this combination really created something quite unique at that time and that really captured, I guess, the zeitgeist of the community. Yeah, and are the films from Singapore's Golden Age part of the AFA's archive? Yes, so currently we have the Cafe Careers Collection. These films uh, were believed to be up to like around 100 titles, but we have about 90 plus of them. And this is also inscribed in the UNESCO um, Memory of the World collection, which is quite a big deal. So we do have the Kelly Caris stuff. The Shaw stuff is still with the Shaw collection at this time. Cool. So can you maybe share more about what it takes to collect, restore and showcase such films? I think firstly, we need to see the value, right, of like the heritage of the film, whether this film had possessed like cultural memories, for instance, like community. So, so then we have to evaluate how these films mean to communities back then and also for a new audience. So that's how we really think about collecting. And for restoring, really, I think the first priority is always about the conditions of the real. We prioritise when the negatives or the reals itself are really not in great condition. And then we had to restore it because restoration just means a way of making the film survive. Mm -hmm. So then these are real first priority considerations that we have when we collect and restore. Okay, and then now we're moving into hyper-local storytellings. Brian, In the Mood for Love is actually one of the movies that you reference in both the 2018 and the current version of Lost Cinema. Yeah. So why has your fascination with this film endured or has the mm. nature of your fascination changed? It has changed over the years. You know, like, like I said, all of us, uh, most filmmakers have been in love with this idea of nostalgia. I'm not a very nostalgic person, actually. <laughs> but I do like what Wong Kar Wai has captured in his films. 
And I think as a filmmaker, he's quite integral in a lot of the new wave of filmmakers in Singapore, you know, from Royston, you know. We've all been kind of uh, really inspired by his aesthetics. I, I didn't really want to copy Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> I didn't use as much of him in the new version. In fact, I, I really look at the Golden Age uh, cinema in Singapore. I was just looking for signs of lost cinema, right? And mm. of course, we had the biggest lost cinema in Singapore, <laughs> which is the Cafe Chris collection. Even the first Montanak film was basically thrown away, right? Yeah. There's no... The, the producer threw it into the lake or reservoir or whatever <laughs> because he was so angry. And then the whole idea of Lok Wanto died and then Singapore was separated from Malaysia. P. Ramli went back to KL. All this that we... We just lost. It's such a shame, you know. Yeah. So um, I guess Onkawa is not it's not so big in the second version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, though, AFA will be holding a retrospective of Onkawa's films in March and April. Most of them set in the city that he is most closely associated with, which is Hong Kong. So Kewi, can you maybe tell us more about these newly restored versions of his work and what the process involved? Yeah, that's why I thought like the timing of this is quite hmm. good because um, you know we're talking about like Brian's Law Cinema, which features Wong Kar Wai and like Kathy Curry's films, which is part of Asian Film Archives collection. And then we are just gonna release this like retrospective for this director, right? I think just really talking about this newly restored films. So we are gonna screen eight of his like major titles, seven of which are newly restored in four K. I want one very interesting thing about these restorations is that Wong Kar Wai himself is overseeing the restorations. He actually faced a dilemma, which is something that I would love to like post it to our audience as well as you guys. His dilemma is that he was struggling between restoring these films to the form in which the audience had remembered them, and between that, how he had originally envisioned them, which means that he wanted to change the films in some ways. From an archive point of view, there's actually a no-no in terms of like a director changing their films during a restoration period. That's something that Wong Kawai kind of took creative liberties, but hey, he's Wong Kar Wai, so maybe he has, you know, some creative license on that. I think I just want to point out one thing about one of these restorations, which is the film Happy Together. Actually, a fire accident in 2019 caused some of the loss of the original negative of this film. So it actually made the restoration much more challenging. So actually, Wong Kar Wai had to shorten some of like Tony Long's monologues in this new version because a lot of this dialogue is lost. But he managed to restore most of the scenes to better quality. I just want to point this out because even such a big filmmaker like Wong Kar Wai, such a big film like Happy Together, it still faces such a big risk in terms of lostness, which I think is part of the theme of what we're talking about today. Aside from that, he made different things like sound mixing to In the Mood for Love. He changed the sound mixing and he also changed the credits. And then I think just a little plug like, with this new restored films that were screening, it would be accompanied with a special video message by Wong Kar Wai himself. Touching on that, I think in the recent years, the cityscape of Hong Kong has come to be expressed in images of protests. And for now, it's also an unreachable landscape due to travel restrictions and the suspended travel bubble between Singapore and Hong Kong. Uh, what strikes you about looking at Wong's films from the vantage of 2021? For me, like Wong Kar Wai's films almost exist in its own universe. So even the Hong Kong that he portrays, it's a very romanticized one, one tinged with Christopher Doyle's lens. I'm actually not sure how to answer this question. Or one interesting fact about Wong Kar Wai's films is that he always has a relationship with 
Singapore or Nanyang, yeah. like in, in, in his like version, um, especially the, the Love Trilogy. I thought that was quite interesting because he always hugs back to the 1950s and 60s era, which is back to you know what we're talking about in terms of the golden era, because that's when Hong Kong and Southeast Asia, specifically Malaya, mm. enjoyed very close relationships in terms of film connections and in terms of cultural networks. I just wanted to talk about like, you know, in the 70s onwards, when Hong Kong cinema's relationship took a turn with Southeast Asia or Malaya, like in many Bruce Lee films, Southeast Asia actually became some sort of duck continent, mm -hmm. you know, like full of villains and black magic, some sort of like exoticization as well. But then with Wong Kar Wai, you know, in the 90s, he actually wanted to go back with the love trilogy, back to the romantic notion or like that sort of warmth that he felt in the, back in the 50s, 60s between Hong Kong and and Nanyang in his, in his words. So I thought that was quite an interesting relationship to, to bring up. Now we're just going into talking about screened and live performances. So Brian, you have definitely worked prolifically in both theatre and film. So what draws you to these modes of expression? Theatre has a particular magic, right? The physicality of yeah. it. Like um, when you encounter the, the actor right in front of you. Mm -hmm. Whereas a uh, film, of course, it's uh, you go into some kind of a dream mode. You know, you watch it and it's almost like dreaming or sleeping, you know. And I've always been kind of fascinated with these forms. And I've always wanted to see if there's like an overlap in between and whether I can create the conditions of theatre and cinema and create the conditions of cinema and theatre. I guess lost cinema is like that, right? Mm. Uh, like uh, the audience comes in and you don't really know what you're watching at first and like all the characters kind of seep in like a dream and yeah. then suddenly like little pockets of narrative suddenly burst out. So I've always wanted to create something surprising, I guess, for the audience. But the, the form of theatre is very exciting for me because it's alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Putting in a giant screen behind kind of creates the conditions of cinema. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still a theatre lah. Yeah, and when you do bring, you know, that essence of film uh, into the performance space, what are some of the challenges and considerations? Well, cinema has a tendency to overwhelm or just entrance the audience, you know. If you spend too much energy in it, people will just watch the screen and not watch the actor. So it's always a fine line of how you, you know the form so that they are not just watching the screen at the end of the day lah. And of course, in uh, this new day, Third Space has emerged, the online space. Mm. Uh, and a version of Lost Cinema 2020 was actually released last year yeah. during the COVID-19 lockdown. Yeah. Uh, what did you take away from this edit? And has it influenced the live staging in any way? <laughs> I mean, when COVID happened, right? I mean, we didn't expect it. Remember, we were, no. we were going to open already. Yeah, we were then, so close. Yeah, and then on the final day, it's like, okay, we're not going to open and we have to record this whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, we just garang you know, just go and do it and record it and make it into a film. And of course, there was a lot of things in the edit that I had to cut away. You know, in theatre, you can get away with, with pregnant pauses, you know, yeah. like there's a sense of anticipation when the actor comes in and then just stands in front of you looking at you. You know, there, there's the excitement. But in film, when you do that, right, it's like the audience is like, why is he not doing anything? Why is he so boring? So I had to, I had to cut a lot of those things that were magical in the theatre. Right. And, and a lot of things didn't translate well. So right. I just had to snip it off, you know, make it flow more freely in, in the... I guess everyone's watching it on their YouTube and their iPhones yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, I had to, just had to recalibrate and make it work for the medium. 
mm. that is shown in. Yeah. And going into this life staging, fingers mm-hmm. crossed, are there any changes? I'm asking as an actor also, like anything different that you're going to do this time around? No, no. I, because we never showed it to a live public, right, except for like, right. like our four <laughs> guest audience, you know, ten audience. You know. Who like still gave us an applause at the end. Yeah, yeah so I, I'm quite excited to see how they react to it okay. because it's, it's quite an interesting experience, you know, cinematic theatre. Yeah, it's different for sure. Kewi, what are your thoughts on how the online space has changed the space of cinema? Well, firstly, I think the appeal of the big screen is still always going to be there. Mm. I mean, despite recent events. But like, for instance, we have reopened the cinemas in Singapore, ours as well. And I think actually more people are craving for the big screen because, again, we're all saturated by so much small screen these days. Like, And of course, we have so much subscriptions. I mean, mm-hmm. like Netflix or recently Disney, Disney Plus, Plus, if anyone is you know <laughs> involved in that. But... Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm trying to say is like, you can also invest in a big screen at home. I mean, these days it's quite trendy. But at the end of the day, the online space gives us more options. But I feel the immers- immersive space, you know, like what Brian was saying, something that really engulfs you, that experience still can't be substituted unless you really have a lot of money to like, you know, make home <laughs> theatre stuff. Yeah. That's my thought about it. And hopefully we will still... You know, continue like traditional ways of like exhibiting films, like even with like 35mm or like just a big screen, a digital big screen. I think that's still very much valuable. Just last week, I went to watch a Love DS film at Oldham. It's a five hour film. You know, it was quite amazing. There was like 15 to 20 audience and none of us left, you know, for that full five hours. Oh, really? Okay. I thought I was going to fall asleep and get bored or whatever, right? But (laughs) I wasn't. I've been just looking at TikTok and and, and Instagram. Short form media, yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so when you are challenged with this medium, you are just forced to surrender, right? You can't like, oh no, I have to run away. But you just surrender yourself and uh, yeah, just being in that darkened audience, you know, in that space with other people just watching this incredible life folding, unfolding in front of your eyes. That was just quite amazing. Wow. And um, yeah, it was very easy and enjoyable to watch that. So I was quite inspired. I'm going to make my own seven hour film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really glad to, to hear from you because I wasn't there at the screening because I, I programmed it, but I wasn't sure how people are going to react to it. But then it's, it's really nice to yeah. hear this. Yeah, It was quite amazing. I actually have a question as well, like in terms of, you know, translating the theater, lost cinema to, to the online form, right? Like, mm-hmm. What was the turnover time for that? Because I'm sure <laughs> things must be quite last minute. I don't know. We knew that we had to film it within three days. Yeah. Wow. Then what, what changes were there, like, even for like, actors, I guess for Muna? Like, did you have to adjust anything in terms of your performance? I think in terms of performance, there was not, not much that we were adjusting because we mm. were kind of performing it to an audience. But even performing for Lost Cinema, there were moments where we performed to the camera instead. Mm. So that was kind of an interesting balance. So the fact that we had to film it in the end, we were like, okay, there's not, you know, we were kind of playing it in the same way mm. already. Mm. And it was too late to change anything. <laughs> that too, <laughs> yeah. practically. Because they had, they had, you know, the actors had to hit their marks. It was quite specific. There was, you know, that scene yeah. with you and Irfan. Yeah. Uh, they had to copy a film live, you know. So yeah. they had to match the angles and the yeah. position and the lighting. So they had to run to different spots of the stage to match so that they could emulate the frame as mm-hmm. well. So we couldn't change that lab. But actually, people who saw it, they were really quite interested because it, it became like meta theatre or meta film, you know. So mm. there was yeah. like 
film within a film within a film yeah. kind of yeah. feeling. So it was quite interesting to watch it on a small screen because it, there was that third layer again. Yeah. Because I, I, yeah. I watched it and I uh. caught it. I remember that this was like one of the first recorded pandemic theatre. <laughs> and, and then I thought it was quite interesting because it's like almost like the cinema cinematic space and the theatrical space had been collapsed. And this is one of the first forays into this space, right? In terms mm. of theatre. Then yeah. it's like sometimes I, I, I remember watching it and I was like, well, how do I negotiate this space now? Because mm. it's quite cinematic, but then also clearly live performed. Yeah. So then that made me wonder about like this form of like theatre, right? Being recorded mm. online and being on a screen. Then, I mean, of course, for the next few months, like a lot of such productions came out and I also was trying to navigate this mediums, basically, how it all translates. Thank you very much both of you Kiwi and Brian for sharing your thoughts and for those of you listening in thanks for joining us uh, Making a Scene is of course produced by the Esplanade Theatres on the Bay Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre by the way just so you know our theme music is from More Than We Know from the album Sea Monster by the Steve McQueens a band supported by the Esplanade under the Mosaic Associate Artists Initiative Look out for more episodes of Making a Scene at esplanade.com slash offstage and on Spotify, Apple, Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with art makers. Bye guys! Bye.